It's a marshmallow world in the winter, and this is the last episode of Morning Meeting of 2020. Thank God, Michael! Oh, thank God, and 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 I love that little mini Christmas jingle I just got there. Oh, Michael, I'm, I'm very excited today. Why? Because it's the day after Christmas? It's the day after Christmas, which means it's the day that I get to go to the town dump and throw away all... Sorry, recycle all the wrapping <laughs> paper and boxes. Love that day. And uh, we have a pretty exciting guest on Morning Meeting today. Who is that? Who? Why his yeah, name who? Alan Cumming, Michael, and he's the Renaissance man of our time. Uh, wow. What a, that's like a, a Boxing Day present. It's, it's, it's a day after Christmas present for me. I love it. And, you know, there's nothing I don't love about Alan. Can he act? He can. Can he sing? Oh, yes. Does he write? Well, yes, he does. And we'll talk about his memoir in a bit. Uh, he sings sappy songs. He has a nightclub. I mean, he's the perfect man of this moment to, to give us insight on everything that's going on in this crazy world. Yeah, but let's do some delayed gratification. Everyone's opened a lot of presents yesterday. Fine. On Christmas, or maybe Christmas Eve, depending on what you like to do. But now we're going to ask you to just wait to open, unwrap this present, maybe a few minutes, right? Okay, fine. I guess we also have an issue that came out today. So we can talk about all those delicious stories, too. Delicious. What's your most delicious? delicious. <laughs> what's your what's your most delicious piece in the issue? Well, I will say, Michael. I mean, look, I worked on a fun one this week with Holly Peterson uh, about Jared and Ivanka. God, are we going to ruin the Christmas joie with the talk of Jared and Ivanka? I suppose. But we talked about what's next for them socially and in life. Now we know that they've purchased a plot of land in Miami. But where will they find camaraderie, companionship, or will they simply be too toxic to regain a place in society? Interesting question. Yeah, when everyone's trying to go home this Christmas season, this holiday season, and they're home on Lower Park Avenue here in New York. Uh, but I think as you and, and Holly sort of explored in this piece, which is gossipy and informed at the same time, I love it because it's, uh, it's you know, they're really not going to be able to go back to New York. And it's, it, they've I th- sort of basically acknowledged it by buying this land in uh, that super high-end gated community down in Miami, you know, probably trying to retreat there. And what, as, as Ivanka gets set to maybe launch a senatorial bid from Florida or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. We'll see what's next for her. I mean, this was a funny one for me to work on because I rem- Ivanka and I are the same age and I moved to New York in 2004. And I so you're 39? I'm 39. Jesus, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> 39. I'll be 39 until further notice. Thank you. So Ivanka and I are the same age. And, you know, working in the fashion industry, Michael, remember when we used to go to events? Yes. Big events. We used to go to a lot of events. That was actually a part of the job. But for a period of time in the mid to late aughts, Ivanka Trump was everywhere. And I remember seeing her at all these parties kind of in passing. And she had a certain glare about her. I don't know if I'd call it an aura, but it was more of a glare. And it was sort of this light emanating from her. She was so blonde, so shiny, so pert, so polished. And you couldn't help but feel kind of like a schlubby loser when you were in her orbit, no matter how nicely you were attired or how elegantly you were put together. Because she just had this like Barbie doll-like quality and she spoke very well and she always smiled in the right way. And you got a sense that she was never in a bad mood. Everything was always very even and perky. She was like a newscaster in that sense. In many ways, she was right at home in that world, but 
she never really achieved the level of, you know, Lauren Santa Domingo-ness that perhaps she aspired to. And Holly explores that very interestingly in her piece, sort of discussing why, quote unquote, high society, whatever that means now, different from what it meant then, but how they reacted to the Trumps in general and more specifically to Ivanka and what could be next for her now that, uh, you know, 84 4.5% of Manhattanites voted for Joe Biden. But you know what Ivanka is to me? Tell me. She is this female version of Michael Corleone, right? Hmm. She was the one who was going to give the family credibility, who was going to sort of be the sort of like one who takes the family legitimate, right? And, you know, and you've got this corrupt father figure, father, you know, in, and she's the one who's going to sort of give them entree into all these worlds. And maybe she has, but like, she still cannot escape, you know, what that family is, which is very complicated. Yeah. Or as, you know, Michael Corleone would say, or try to say, that's my family, Jared, that's not me. But, you know, it is your family. And it's, that's going to be the central tension of her life. Maybe not. Maybe she's 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 happy to be defined by it, but I feel like that's going to be the, the, the society in, in, in New York is always going to view her as like, are you your family or are you not? We think you are your family, therefore, and you've served your family, and therefore, that's the problem when 84% of people in New York have voted against your father and your family. That world is very small, right? The, the sort of quote-unquote high society life in New York, it's very insular, Everyone knows one another. And if they don't know one another personally, they know of one another. And it's in many ways hostile to outsiders. And I think it was always a bit hostile to Ivanka. She was just never able to be that convincing that she was fundamentally different, you know, less gauche, less flashy, less on the make, if you will, than the rest of her family. And that was never, that's never an appealing quality. This is a crowd that thrives on privacy and sort of understated behavior. Michael, if this is too snobby, just tell me. But I always felt like Trump was a kind of a poor man's version of a rich man. Yeah, that's not snobby. It sounds kind of bad, but the point being is that he was a caricature of a rich person. And Ivanka is a sort of caricature of this rich, fancy society lady. But in fact, she has little relationship to that world. Well, and she was always trying to sell something too, not just herself, but there was always a product attached to it, you know? In many ways, she reminded me of a Jessica Simpson wannabe. And I say that because not just because the two are blonde and, you know, they have sort of similar visuals, but also, you know, Jessica Simpson took this popularity that she had with the masses, right, as a singer and an entertainer, and turned it into this billion-dollar company selling ugly shoes, frankly. And Ivanka tried to do the same thing, becoming a mass market household name fashion brand. It never really took off, especially after the election. It all went bust. But it was kind of an interesting parallel. And for some reason, I think about them in the same terms. Okay, so Alan Cumming, Michael, where to begin? He's won Emmys. He's won Tonys. He's written a memoir that will make you laugh, that will make you cry, that will make you think you're a terrible writer, even if you've won, let's say, a Pulitzer. He is one of the most uh, acclaimed Renaissance men of our time, and we are so happy to have him here as a Boxing Day gift on Morning Meeting, the inimitable, singular Alan Cumming. Alan? Hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for calling us. We're so happy to have you on the show. My pleasure. Oops, excuse me. I'm scared. <laughs> Alan, um, where does this podcast find you today? I'm in the Catskill Mountains, fresh oh. from a like, leaving... Saigon-like journey back from Britain. What was the scene? You were in Scotland, right? I was. I was in Scotland and I flew back um, the other day, so it's terrifying. Madness. I mean, I'm very glad to be back in the 
Catskills. Well, we are so happy to have you back. Um, And we're thrilled to have you on Morning Meeting because to us, you're the ultimate holiday gift, not only because you're a wonderful performer and singer and writer, which I want to talk to you about your writing um, in just a minute, but you also have this incredible center of New York nightlife, Club Coming. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in that world for you guys right now? Um, Well, obviously, it's been quite diminished. Club Coming is a cabaret bar in the East Village, so we didn't have any shows at all for a long time lately we've been late summer and kind of since the indoor dining thing has started again we've kind of had um we've had things outside we have our little parking space um audience thing but we're not allowed to reperform on the street so we have a screen sometimes we project things on sometimes we have shows we're streaming some shows as well but our uh, capacity fire capacity is only something like 72 so we're only allowed 18 of an audience inside so it's kind of uh, <laughs> lost the kind of that packed you know lovely kind of packed community feeling but um and right now of course the indoor dining is banned again so it's a tough time but and obviously it's a little cold to be sitting drinking out on the streets so we're trying to think of warm ways to do that but there's a great team i've been really inspired by how resourceful everybody has been both the performers and the staff at trying to make it work there because it has a really great sense of community and i think people really miss that yeah listening to you say all this alan with your seductive accent uh flirting with me well trying to but um <laughs> and no one can say catskill mountains and make it sound like it should be uh, there should be lach in catskill mountains as well but you're making me feel like like why doesn't someone just say, like, we're going to have some buskers on the street here and we're just going to, I mean, it's just, it feels like we're coming to the point where you should just have live musicians on the street and, and, and screw it all, right? Well, there's been a little bit of that. We've, we can have, like, there's a really um, great guy called Richard just Jazz. I mean, like, we do DJs on the street, you know, and stuff, but, but you have to be closed by 10 o'clock and things like that. So kind of constrained and... Uh... I have a question about Broadway because I remember seeing you in Cabaret, yes? Yes, that was me. Michael, who could forget? Come on. I know. <laughs> And you're talking about this world of streaming now and, 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 and bringing theater. Has, was there ever any talk about putting a, a, a film version of that together? There was. When we did it first in 98, yeah. After, initially there was talk about it. And then, I mean, there's always talk about it. But I don't know. I think it's such a great film, the film that is made of it with Liza and Joe Gray. I sort of think it would have, I mean, the, although the show is a very different beast, you know, narratively and everything. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's look, I love, I think everyone loves Joel's version and Liza, but I just got to thinking like, wow, you know, you, this is a moment where, I mean, we're coming up on 50 years since that, that version was out and it would be great to see for a, a new, and not a better, just a new different. And, you know, and then I think how far Sam Mendes has come in that time as well, right? As when, when, cause he directed that, right? He directed it in London. Yeah. And then he yeah. and Marshall directed it in New York. Yeah. I actually spoke to Sam recently because I found up here in the Catskills, by the locks, I um, found uh, <laughs> some old cassette tapes. I didn't know what they were. One of them was a, an interview that we'd all done in uh, 1994. Wow. That was me, Jane Horrocks, him, this woman, Sarah Kestelman, who played Fallen Schneider. And it was, an, it was sort of an interview show that Sheridan Morley had done for Radio 2. It was hilarious hearing us all talk about it. And so I, I, I digitised it and sent it to Sam. We were having a laugh about how young we all sounded. We lost John Connery this year, right? which was a terrible loss. Do you think you now assume number one status for Scotsman of the world? Well, I'm sure some other people would uh, 
Jackie Stewart, maybe? I don't know. Who's, I mean, who's there? Jackie Stewart definitely would be up there in my book. In terms of sort of acting, well, there's Ewan, of course, Ewan McGregor. There's a few, there's a few of us, actually. But I guess I'm the oldest of the, that clump, I suppose. But Sean, it's so funny. So when I first met him, I was so overwhelmed. I mean, it's like, <laughs> Sean called me, I met him, and he was around about the time when, it was the, when I won the Tony for Cabaret. He was there because he was producing, a, he had been one of the producers of Art, that play, that Yasmin Rea play. And um, the Tony's the press room, I was going along the line doing interviews and I felt his hand on my shoulder and I'd met him like two nights before he'd come to see the show. He came into my interview and put his arm around me and I went, oh. And he looked into the lens and went, oh, this, you know, the entertainment tonight or something. I went, this is my new Sean. And I was just, holy shit, Sean Connery. And I said, well, you're the king of Scotland. That means I am a prince of Scotland. <laughs> and so we had this joke over the years that he was the king and I was a mere prince. And then, then years later, I wrote this book and he read it and called me up about it and had sort of very, it was a book about my, about my dad and stuff. And he had very kind of understood a lot about that and had some similar kind of familial things going on. And he was really, really wanted to speak to me about it. And I was in Berlin doing something. I remember I, there was a couple of messages from him before we connected. And on one of the messages, at the end of this whole thing, he left. Uh, he told me all about how much he enjoyed the book and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, he went, OK, well, uh, good night, sweet prince. And I yeah. saved a little bit of him just saying good night, sweet prince. And I have it on my computer. And sometimes when I DJ, I sometimes just play it. Nobody can hear it in between songs. It's only like two seconds long. But it just makes me feel so... I love it so much. And it was just, you know, it's kind of one of these things, it's such an, when, when something like that happens when he dies, I just realized how lucky and what an honor it was to just have, you know, got to know him a little bit, such a great person. And also someone from another era, I find that really amazing too. Some of the people I've met seem like, you know, from sort of medieval times, it's, it seems such a, a generation ago. But yeah, he was such a sweetheart. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. Um, Alan, we have to talk about your book. Uh, the one that you're mentioning that you had the conversation with Sean about was Not My Father's Son, which is your memoir that came out in 2015. I read this when it came out. It has stuck with me ever since. And to all of our listeners, if you haven't read it yet, you really must. Better yet, download the audiobook because Alan reads it to you when it's heaven on earth. Tell us, are you working on any writing projects right now? Have you had any time during you know this pandemic period to get some thoughts on paper? Because we want to read more of you. Well, that's been one of the great things about this. I've actually, you know, loved that part of the lockdown, having time to just think. And I'm, I have another book, another memoir that is due four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these things that, you know, eventually when you get to four years late, you think, well, what are they going to do? Do you know what I mean? I mean, they're not going to fire me. I mean, well, maybe they will. And that'll be, you know, that'll be all right. I am kind of busy. It's not that I'm slacking. I've just got other things on. And so I've, it's actually been great to have some time to go and really, I'm nearly finished it. A hilarious thing happened to me just recently that made me realize I've got to do that was that I was talking a couple of years ago about Willem Dafoe and to someone and, and someone said, isn't he great? And I'm like, oh, I love Willem. I mean, he's such a great actor and such a nice man. And I've met him a few times. I've been to see his plays in the theater and been met him at parties and things. And someone said, have you never worked with him? And I said, no, I wish. I'd love to work with him. I think he's great. I'd love to work with him. And I'm like, Are you sure? I went, yes, yes. You know. And often people say to me, oh, they think I'm in something. And I say, well, it's, that wasn't me. I, I know you know me from something else, but it's not, that's not me. And then they insist that it's me. And I go, you look, I would know, wouldn't I? I because I wasn't there. Well, the thing with this thing with Willem was I went home that night and I looked up on my website 
and found out I'd done a film with them and I, I'd done scenes with them and everything. I totally forgot. <laughs> so I thought I've really got to be careful when I'm doing this book because I just have, you know, I've just, I, my excuse is that I'm so present, I'm so in the moment that I just forget major things about my life. <laughs> Ugh, well, Alan, it has been so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for checking in with us. We're such so happy to, to speak with you. Now, we do have one. Where are you? Oh, Michael and I are both in New York. In a studio in your houses. Houses. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in uh, my wife's dressing room in the West Village on 11th Street. Are you wearing anything on? <laughs> We're going to build up to my nudity, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Take it slowly now, boy. Gotcha. Alan, we have one request, though. What? When the world opens up again, we're going to need some more of your sappy songs. So can you, like, I don't care if it's at the Carlisle, you can come to Airmail's office, wherever it needs to be, but we're going to need them. Uh, you know, it's so funny, because on the way up here, Grant came and picked me up from Heath, uh, Ed, gosh, look at me, JFK yesterday. And I, I was playing him a list of songs. I'm doing a new show. It's called Alan Cumming is Not Acting His Age. <laughs> and I'm starting that. I know I'm definitely doing it in Australia in, in June end of June I'll probably be the first one but you know all the everyone's concerts have been all backed up since last year so I've got a whole new that's my new thing I'm working towards and I've got to start talking about arrangements and things so I've got some good songs some sappy ones as well you can't go wrong with a sappy song never Michael there is a god Alan is Alan's working on this already thank god <laughs> and Alan you've been our boxing day gift this is so so thank you very much I love boxing day it's such a good I wish American people don't really do it do they no so please explain it for us well it's a day after Christmas day and it's in Britain it's still a holiday it's kind of like the recovery day like the sort of the chill out room of Christmas being the main you know disco if you will and I can't remember the, the whole provenance of boxing day actually uh, why is it called boxing day do people go and watch boxing <laughs> I don't know. I like, but I, I like, I like the, I like that you've, you've, you've come as close to anyone as, as explained, which is it's the chill out room for Christmas. So that's, that's all I need to know. Chill out room. You've done, you've been on the main dance floor and now you, you know, you need a little bit of time to chill out. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Alan. And uh, we wish you all the best in, in, uh, in a new year. Yeah. Happy new year. Happy new year. You know, Michael, when you're talking to Alan, it's like he's the easiest guy in the world to have a conversation with. And then you sort of forget he's like one of the most talented people on the planet right now. I mean, what can't the guy do? It's like win a Tony, no problem. Emmy, sure. Like, no, no big deal. Open up a club, perform on Broadway, perform at Carnegie Hall. You know, I mean, the guy just blows me away. Absolutely. I want to talk about a story you worked on this week. It was penned by Lily Analik, whose interests very much are aligned with mine, Lily, by the way. Like, Lily recently did a great podcast that I was obsessed with about Tracy Lords. Um, and now she's back with a great piece about the 25th anniversary of Showgirls. There's nothing like the tawdry. Yeah. Michael, the whole of 1995. I mean, look, I remember when this came out. Let me tell you. Everybody went to see this. Can I confess something? Tell us. Never saw it. What? Yeah. Is this too tawdry for you? I remember everyone talking about it, you know, and I was like, what's the big deal? And it was a cheeseball movie, but it's not a cheeseball movie, as Lily clearly and wonderfully 
argues for in, in her piece this week, right? Lily argues that it's beyond good or bad. It's beyond category altogether. And it's more of a miracle than a movie created by God or accident, not by man or by design. I love the way Lily writes. I love the way she sums this up. It was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who had also done Basic Instinct. And it launched Elizabeth Berkeley way beyond her Saved by the Bell origins. And um, it's such a fascinating look at, uh, it's, it's a time capsule of a different era. What Lily does is she she does, a, uh, as I like to say, a Q&A about TNA in this film. And it's with the woman who was the casting director for it, a woman named Joanna Ray. And she does all the casting for the film, finds Elizabeth, finds Gina. But she's a phenomenal woman who needs to be heard more from. She was uh, married uh, she was born in England in 1939, began her career as an actress in 1960. She married Aldo Ray, who was a kind of American tough guy actor, favorite of guys like Quentin Tarantino. And she did some casting uh, in, in the 80s. She sort of moved over there. And then she even cast the Twin Peaks pilot for David Lynch, who she collaborated with for a long time. And then she comes along and does Showgirls. So uh, it's just a, you know, Lily uh, brings her usual lovely intelligence and obsessiveness and uh, insights to the piece and gets a fantastic conversation out of Joanna. After I read this, Michael, I had a major regret. You you wanted to get on the poll? Anyway, no, but I had this regret, Michael, that I was, you know, I love these oral histories that we do in airmail about films around big anniversaries. And we missed a major opportunity last year to do a piece on the 30th anniversary of my second or third favorite film ever. Uh, so 30th anniversary, 1989, right? I'm bad at math, right? Mm-hmm. Don't know what. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Tell me why you love it so much. Okay, so I watch it every year. And what I noticed watching it this year is it takes about 30 seconds for the film to go from, you know, oh, sing-along of We Wish You a Merry Christmas to some jackasses on my tail. In that opening scene, do you guys remember that? When Chevy Chase is driving and to go hunt for the Christmas tree and then some guy, you know, it's that fine line between sanity and insanity. And I think that it, National Lampoon's toes it so well. And the acting is so spot on. Chevy Chase is a god, in my opinion. There was no one funnier. His facial expressions kill me. And the dialogue is heaven. And then, you know, the cast is incredible. Johnny Galecki, Juliette Lewis, Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, I, like, I could memorize. I probably have the whole Everyone's favorite crazy person, Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid is so good in this. And it just distills like the very best and worst of the holidays. And for me that it like, it is not the holidays without national lampoons. I'm sorry to say, (laughs) you know, Michael, what it really reminded me of um, when I was watching it this time too, I was completely struck by how the lingerie salesperson in national lampoons, Christmas vacation appears to be the model for Emily Ratajkowski's entire public persona. Have you noticed that? I'll go back and do some research now because I don't remember it, but sure, I will, I'll pull oh, up some clips after we get off the air here. That sultry brunette who is selling Clark Griswold lingerie at the department store. I mean, she looks like Emily Ratajkowski. Emily Ratajkowski acts like her aunt sells lingerie, okay? Just go back and rewatch it and tell me if you do not think that this was the inspiration. So, Michael, I want you to tell me, because uh, uh, while we're on this topic, we have to look for the positive in 2020. So tell me one good thing that happened this year for you. One good result of this. My bird feeder. Your bird? F- I didn't know you had a bird feeder. I put a bird feeder on the fire escape outside my window in front of my desk. Uh-huh. And you know what? 
I got a lot of friends coming back there, and I named them all. What kinds of birds have you seen? I've seen everything from a blue jay to a downy-headed woodpecker. Wow! Who knew that? Who knew that there was a downy-headed woodpecker on 11th Street in New York City? He's here. Comes by. You know, it's like it just taught me like the simple moments to observe in all this. In this, you know, and and it just it's so. It's been a nice thing just to have that. What about you? This is the important thing, Michael. The best thing to come out of 2020 for me has been doing this podcast with you and with all of our great listeners. We want to thank you guys so much for going on this, for joining us on this journey and uh, listening to us. It's been so much fun and it's been really great to meet you guys on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, we love doing this show and we love all of the great guests that we've had on. So thank you so much for being a part of 2020 with us. And, uh, I think it helped both of us, Michael, feel a little bit less lonely and alone and untethered and unmoored in the world that we have this great thing to come back to every week. For sure. No, thank you. And and yeah, what she said is what I say. Those of you listening, you can always tweet at us at Airmail Weekly on Twitter, or we both are on there, and or on Instagram if you have any questions or ideas or comments you want to make. Love to hear more from you. And But yeah, we're excited about the how enthusiastic the reception has been so quickly for for all this. And um, we just want to keep making it smarter and better for you. So thank you. Well, Michael, on that note, would you like to read us out? I'd love to read us out, Ashley. Morning Meeting is produced by Airmail Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday, the day after New Year's Day. Woohoo! With another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us. Later!